0: One, two, three, four, welcome. to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is Ed Hurt. Ed is a great music writer and journalist, and besides that, just a big fan and well of knowledge for music, American music, here coming out of the South. And we'll cover all of that here in a minute, but first of all, welcome, and thanks for being my guest today, Ed.
1: Thank you for having me. So are we in Nippers Corner today? Is this where we are, downtown? Nippers Corner?
0: We are, I guess so. That's the yeah. closest semi-known place to this okay. house anyway. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh yeah, thanks for being here. And I would like to kick things off uh with how we got to meet initially, and that's through the Donnie Fritz connection. Now, a few years back you reviewed one of Donnie's earlier album One Foot in the Groove and that actually, I knew about that review and it's a great review. So is that when you first got to meet Donnie or how did that connection come about?
1: Well, let's see. I mean, back in over the last decade, um, Douglas Corner, it's a club in Nashville, would host sort of an annual show with Donnie Fritz. Um, you know, David Hood, Kelvin Hawley, the Decoys, N.C. Thurman, that band. And, uh, you know, you would go and you would see Dan Penn. You would see, um, you know, Russell Smith of the Amazing Rhythm Aces, Billy Swan. It was sort of like this Tony Joe White, I think. There was like a summit meeting of these great soul musicians. So I would always try to make that show every year. And it was always just a fantastic thing to see. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time I really encountered Donnie just at one of those shows. And, you know, I worked up the courage to go up and say hello to, to Donnie Fritz, you know, and he couldn't have been nicer. So I think that's really how we met initially.
0: Yeah, and th- that's been a connection, you know, going on too, because most recently you wrote about him for the Nashville scene.
1: I did, I did, you know, and I did a review as you as you mentioned uh, for No Depression back in around two thousand eight. That he'd actually read, you know, which is very gratifying that he'd read this review. He seemed to like it. I didn't get too much wrong or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, when I got the chance to interview him last year, uh, I kind of jumped on that because he's such an interesting guy to talk to. I mean, uh, you know, who else has really worked with Peck and Paw? And with Christofferson and with Jerry Wexler and done all these amazing things, and so uh, I really had a, had a ball talking to him about all this stuff. And, he, and you know, Donnie's a great guy to interview because um, he's you know he, he has all these great stories and he has a really funny way of telling them. And you know, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better person just to talk to. So I was really honored to be able to uh, you know to interview Donnie Fritz back then.
0: and certainly one of the most original people that there ever were, probably.
1: Yeah, you know, I love songwriters, too, because um, I I think songwriters are really unusual people whose minds work in a really interesting way, and I think Donnie, you know, is like that, and I I think Dan Penn is like that, you know, and you, you start going down the list, and you realize you're really talking to a group of very evolved, very unusual, very talented people. And that. And Donnie's definitely one of the greatest, absolutely.
0: So you've been writing about music for a long time, but how did things start for you as far as your appreciation for writing and music? How did that, did that come hand in hand or was one first?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I was born in Clarksville, Tennessee, which is like 45 miles up the road here on the, on the Kentucky border. And, you know, Clarksville is more like West Tennessee or Kentucky than it is like Nashville, for example. Um, as we like to say, there's the Clarksville, Hopkinsville, Paducah corridor, you know, and, and all that, man. And, uh, you know, so I kind of grew up in a world where it, it, I was born in 1958 and, um, The blues was still kind of a thing that you felt in Clarksville in a way that you don't really feel it in Nashville, for example, even. So I was lucky in that sense to experience kind of this, the otherness, you might say, of blues that here in this, in my hometown, there was a a substantial African-American population that was to some degree a little bit segregated. You know, back in those days, it was, there was a part of town and you lived in the other part of town. So I was very aware really early that there was this thing going on, like blues, r and soul, you know, African-American music, and it was right in my backyard. So uh, I always had a sense of this, of this, that this was just around the corner from me. And um, later on, when I got a little bit older, uh, you know, we would, uh, for example, take fishing trips up to West Tennessee to this place. Uh, it's where Carl Perkins is from, Tiptonville, up in there, the, the extreme northwest corner of Tennessee, Real Foot Lake, right? And we would go fishing up there in the summer, and you could hear, you know, at, at, at nighttime, you know, we were sitting out kind of looking at this lake, and you would hear WLS or WSM or whatever it was, you know, and you would. I heard you know, Howlin' Wolf, and I heard Elmore James, I heard Bobby Bland, uh, all of these blues artists kind of just coming over the radio over in West Tennessee. So I always had a feel for for blues just just from those experiences and also from R&B, you know. So, so I think I have a pretty typical background for a certain kind of Southerner, you know, Andreas, who has always really loved blues and R&B, And in that sense, I'm similar, you know, I guess, to to Dan Penn and Donnie Fritz and all the people that I really love to write about because I have sort of the same experience listening to country music and the stuff that's on the radio and then this whole other world of chess records and Elmore James and, you know, John Brim and, you know, the list is endless of of great blues artists. So I had, I think I was almost brought up and almost born with a feel for this music.
0: So how did it take you from having that feel to actually turning it into a career for yourself?
1: Well, you know, writing as a career is, uh, is a funny thing, as you know. I mean, it's, it's an avocation and it's a vocation at the same time. But, you know, I always was a pretty good writer and I wrote in high school and I was always interested in music as a writer. Um... And later on, when I went to the university, I went to the University of Tennessee, for example, I remember interviewing uh, like Gary Burton uh, for, the, for, the high, for, the, for the college newspaper. He's a great jazz vibraphonist, and he'd come to Knoxville, and that might have been the first person I ever really interviewed, and I didn't know what I was doing, of course, and all of that, but... So it came out of sort of that experience, and then You know, when I was um, doing other things, I always kind of dabbled in trying to catch up with people. And, you know, I was talking earlier before we started about, for example, interviewing uh, someone like Alex Chilton, which is way back in 1981, before I really ever did anything much professionally as a writer. And that was probably the first piece that I ever really wrote for kind of a higher level publication uh, on this show that Alex Chilton did in Nashville in 1981, this rockabilly show at Vanderbilt University. And so before this show uh, occurred, I, I had gone down to Memphis with uh, a couple of my friends taking the typical pilgrimage to find Alex Chilton. You know, we called him up on the phone and said, can we come down and talk to you? And he said, well, sure. You know, and so we meet him. And Uh, We just did the typical thing of, you know, trying to make this pilgrimage and find this person and talk to him, which was a great experience. And it taught me that, you know, you could just go out and do these things. All you had to do was make a phone call and have a little courage and call people up and they would talk to you. So that sort of fed my interest in it. But really, you know, I didn't I did some things in Memphis when I lived there in the 90s for the Memphis Flyer. I did some record reviews, um, things like that. You know, just sort of dabbling in it because I had another job that was a full-time job back then. Uh, And it wasn't until around 2005 that um, a fellow named Chuck Eddy, who is uh, a writer and an editor and a really great thinker on music and rock and roll, just sort of noticed some things that I was doing for this blog for this, you know, discussion board about music and I, I would write these things about country music and so forth and participate in these discussions and one day I said, you know, maybe you should write for the village voice or something and I'm like, "Well, that would be fantastic." And Chuck's always been a guy that that goes out and finds not me, but really talented people, talent, you know, to to write for him and he's always been really good at recognizing that and encouraging other writers he's a great guy and uh, so I started writing for The Voice in um, like around 2005 and then I got up my courage and submitted some stuff to the national scene a year later and started writing for them and they just sort of ballooned into kind of doing what I do today basically so that's really how it occurred.
0: So you mentioned meeting and talking to Alex Chilton in 81 yeah. Uh, how do did you experience him, and how was that? You know, whole encounter with him was very much known as a, let's say, an interesting personality, and very much of a musical chameleon.
1: Beyond interesting, and it's it's great to be able to talk about this because I've never really explained fully what happened there, and the interview itself has been used um, in in a, in a book on Alex. That came out a couple of years ago. Um, I've used bits of it, like when when Alex died in 2010. I used some bits of that to write a little piece for the Village Voice about what I'd seen back then. But I've really never had the chance to explain just what an, an unusual experience that really was for all of us there. And uh, you know, it was it was me and it was two other people. Uh, friends of mine who were both big star fans and Alex Chilton fans, and we went down there and uh, we met at this place called The Well, which is what became the Antenna Club, basically. And it, back then it was like a biker bar. I mean, there were people playing pinball and, you know, some heavy looking people. And it was just a weird Memphis experience, you know, totally, you know, and uh, we go in there and um, he was with this guy named Ross Johnson who was the drummer for the Panther Burns down there? He's, he's a, he was a, Ross is a librarian, a drummer, a writer, and just one of the funniest people who's who's ever recorded anything. He's a great, great figure. So this is after uh, the album Light Flies on Sherbert came out, which came out in late nineteen seventy nine, and we had all bought this record and and no one really knew who Alex Chilton was. That's the thing. He was a mysterious figure. There wasn't, of course, the internet. You could, you, there's no way to find out many of these things. And so it was all the speculation about who, how is it that a guy that did the letter and did cry like a baby, then does big star, and then does something as crazy, you know, and great. It's like flies on sherbert. We couldn't figure this out. So we had to go talk to him. And so Ross is on like Flies on sure, But So we're sitting there. And, um, you know, with Alex Chilton, I mean, this was a guy who had a great musical mind. And the thing about Alex that I saw then and, and definitely saw later was that he was just a guy who liked to experiment all the time. So it was a kind of an unusual thing to meet a pop musician who kind of had a feel for things that were commercial, but who also liked to kind of almost deliberately subvert that by experimenting all the time with it. And that's, you could sense that that's where this guy was coming from. Um, I remember him telling us things like, you know, I don't have a guitar in my house now and it doesn't matter because You know, the music business has nothing to do with music. I mean, that was a great quote. The other great quote that Alex told us at this meeting that I use all the time, he said, you know, we were talking about why people didn't understand Light Flies on Sherbert, which is not an easy record to understand unless you kind of free your mind of certain uh, preconceptions about music. And he said, well, you know these rock critics, these Ivy Leaguers, um, they think that they're above rock and roll and they think they understand it totally. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, they don't begin to get the picture of what it's all about. And when you hear that and I was about 21 years old or something or 22 years old in 1981, that made a big impression on me. Like, okay, I understand certain things now that I hadn't understood before. So, he was just a very elusive guy. I mean, he had this voice that sounded like he had an ice cube in his mouth, and he he had this drawl and this laconic thing that was really unusual and very um, kind of captivating in a way. You know, you could just tell this was somebody whose mind was working in a lot of different weird directions, and was he was also very just kind of elusive, but. A lot of people have had experiences, you know, as we all know, later on, you know, after this has all been sort of explicated almost to death in a way, really, that the big star story and the Alex Chilton story. Now, I meet 20-year-old, you know, women in Kroger and somehow we'll t- have talk about music. We're standing in line. It turns out she's the biggest big star fan in the world. And you go, well, my God, that's that just wouldn't have happened back then. But... Um, you know, I think now it's it's pretty obvious that you know he's he's just simply one of the greats of American music. But um, you know, he was just he was just very elusive about things. You couldn't really get a handle on where he was coming from because I think he was interested in so many different things, and that taught me a lot too about what being a musician almost is. You know, I, I think in my opinion, you have to be interested in a lot of things to really be a musician, musically, and he sort of exemplified that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm always, you know, like Big Star, how the afterlife is bigger than, you know, what they had as far as popularity. A lot bigger, yeah. And and that Alex Shelton's discography or his, you know, musical life was probably one of the most diverse of, any or is out absolutely. there absolutely I mean we dream him and Miles Davis and maybe a few other people who absolutely. were able to you know just go where other people wouldn't go
1: he taught me a lot I mean and there are other people obviously who did the same thing I mean he's not alone but um you know he taught me a lot about like New Orleans music for example you know yeah, Alex, he lived there for a while too. he lived there for a while right and he would do he did Willie T's um uh, thank you john this song about drugs and prostitution and heartbreak and so forth you know and he single-handedly would revived songs like that that would have been lost to history so that's another thing that i really like about uh, alex and people like alex is that you know they they bring material back to life that like he does a great version of this obscure frederick knight song frederick knight you know it's the guy was on stacks and he's from alabama this song called claim to fame that you know he that still lives in the repertoire because he did it and 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 a lot of other things too you know uh gosh you know mr danny pearson's what's your sign this ridiculous song about astrology he turns it into this beautiful thing so you know i think there there it takes a lot of talent to be able to do that, and uh, and as far as the afterlife goes, I think you're right, I mean, uh, now today, those big star records are all considered classics, and yeah, everyone knows them, and so they have become what they should have been, which are really almost as popular as Fleetwood Mac or something in a way, they really are, so... Um, I think it's really interesting when, when artists that are cult artists, and I'm sure you've experienced that this yourself, you know, that they become mainstream artists and then, and that's the way it should be. Everyone should just like this music. It shouldn't be a cult thing at all. So I think he he had, I think he had a lot of influence, not just on me, but on a lot of people who, who have started to realize those things. Um, so I, I was really lucky to have, to have gotten to know him a little bit. And, uh, have hung out with him a little bit.
0: Yeah. So you you mentioned uh, you know the, the term pilgrimage to actually do that interview with with Alex. Yeah. You do did different sorts of pilgrimages, I guess, to uh, diving even further back in the time and to uh, you know Mississippi blues of of earlier generations. How did that come about? Because you mentioned. You know, growing up, you developed a, an appreciation for for the sound of of the country and blues. That's right. Uh, That's right. It, did that originate then, or is it something that you you discovered through like people like Alex Chilton wanting to go back from there?
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. It wasn't really through necessarily uh, Alex Shilton. It was. I mean, again, I'm sort of typical in the sense that in the 60s, you know, in 1964, you know, uh, Sunhouse and Skip James were rediscovered by these teams of blues researchers who were going down to Mississippi, and this happened simultaneously. And this is 64 when the Beatles hit. So, you know, there was an, a, this, a, this sort of awareness of blues and earlier music, having a lot to do with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the animals and all the English and American groups who were, were playing blues at that time. So I was always pretty aware before, uh, you know, before I really got grown that there, that there was blues and I knew something about it. I mean, one of the first blues records I ever bought as a teenager was this, um, a Howlin' Wolf album with a green cover and like a jug with XXX, a moonshine jug on the cover. And it was mastered so bad that it had like this 60 cycle hum all the way through the record. And it turned out that three of the songs were actually by, I believe this is right, Andreas, you know, Joe Hill Lewis. There were these great harmonica instrumentals from Memphis that were tacked on somehow to this Howlin' Wolf record. And then it was the Howlin' Wolf stuff that he had done, uh, I guess in West Memphis, you know, the 1951 stuff before chess, which I think is some of Howlin' Wolf's best music. And so I knew about that, you know, and I knew about Elmore James and I knew about, uh, you know, Bobby Bland and B.B. King and James Brown. Um, I actually met B.B. King, I mean, Bobby Bland one time on his bus, he came to play in Clarksville And he took us on his bus after the show, and Bobby Bland's, you know, got a towel around his neck and everything. It's, you know, it's after the show and everything, and uh, you know, we talked to him for a few minutes and got our picture taken with him and uh, and all that. So this was in the '80s, and so, so I had sort of as much direct experience as you could have with it, I suppose, as you could almost get at that time. If I'd lived in Memphis, obviously, I could have just found Furry Lewis, Would have it lived down the street, Mose Vinson, all these people, you know, were still around back then, but I didn't live in Memphis, but, um, you know, I still think it worked out pretty well. Um, anyway, I mean, so in the 90s, I got to know through some friends of mine who are in the book business, this, this guy named Stephen Colt, who um, wrote, The definitive books on Charlie Patton and on Skip James. And he was also a blues researcher. And he was one of the people who discovered, uh, helped discover uh, uh, some of these blues guys down in Mississippi. And he was friends with Fahey, with Bill Barth, with, um, you know, all these guys who were, I guess maybe even Gail Dean Wardlow. I'm not sure about that. But he was part of that scene. You know, he was one of the original you know, bluesnicks who went to Mississippi and discovered these people. And, um, so he was writing a book on Skip James and, um, the guy that was kind of doing the book and editing the thing said, you know, Steve wants you to go down to Bentonia and talk to Jack Owens, who is this guitarist who was alive back then, who played in sort of a similar style. I guess he played in drop D and all that, like Skip James did. And he was still down there. So, I went down to Bentonia and hung out and, and, and interviewed Jack Owens about what he remembered from the 20s, or not from the 20s and 30s, but from what he remembered from the 40s and 50s about what the blues scene was like and about Skip James. And uh, it turned out he was really, he was a bootlegger and he did all these other things. And he was what you call a semi-pro musician. So that was a pretty interesting experience just to see firsthand you know kind of where he lived how he lived what he was really like and uh you know all the things that I'm not sure you can really experience so much anymore so that was um you know again sort of a typically you know you know white boy in the blues experience going to Mississippi and doing all that and it was one of the great times of my life so um and I think I helped out Steve with his book a little bit and um uh, Um, you know, I mean, Colt, he and I were pretty good friends. I talked to him on the phone quite a bit. He he got really sick toward toward the end of his life, and he would call me on the phone, and we'd talk about stuff, and um, he taught me a lot about what it meant to be a writer, what it meant to be a blues writer, and uh, about what the music really meant because he was kind of a guy who had come through blues and come out the other end of it, so he didn't have necessarily the same views about it and their fans as you would see normally he he took what you might say was a contrarian attitude toward things and i don't totally i'd never totally agreed with some of what he was saying but in general it's a good thing for people to hear those contrarian views and i suppose in my writing i do from time to time try to Put a little bit of that into the into the writing, just to say, just we should all stop and back up and think about this a little bit more. So he was he was a major inspiration on me in, in just a lot of ways. He, Steve was really like an aging juvenile delinquent man, and it was always a lot of fun to be around him and just to see what he would get into. So I thoroughly enjoyed knowing that guy.
0: Yeah. So the more I research and the more I know. I know how much I really don't know either right. is that something that kind of brings true to you too the more you research the more it sparks the curiosity to learn more
1: absolutely absolutely um, you know I mean if you just wanted to spend the rest of your life listening to soul music or R&B from a certain air, certain period you'd never get through all of it right I mean it's impossible so and same thing with jazz I mean gosh, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of jazz records to listen to. There's a lot of music to, um, to really explore. So I feel that every day. Um, and, you know, it, it is important to to never think that you know everything about it and to be open to this experience.
0: Yeah, so earlier you mentioned that in the early 60s, a lot of the first and second generation bluesmen got rediscovered and somebody else that went on his own personal pilgrimage mainly based out of chicago was michael bloomfield right who you know is best known for his playing on some of bob dylan's most iconic stuff or or paul butterfield's bands now you extensively researched his career too and you were a participated in writing a book you can t- please tell me here in a minute what exactly your involvement was ed ward was the main writer of that
1: that's right that's and right now
0: you're working on uh liner notes for a bear family extensive box set yeah which i, gotta I get am that.
1: really i gotta excited. get to work on that too that's right um that's right um uh well you know i was always kind of a bloomfield fan, I knew about Mike Bloomfield way back in the 60s I because everyone had Super Session and everyone knew about the Al Cooper connection and uh, certainly I knew about uh, Like a Rolling Stone and Highway 61. I knew about, even I I knew about the electric flag, you know, Groovin' is Easy, I remember that, you know, kind of when it came out, I I was aware of of Bloomfield um, early on, I mean, you know, there's a book that Rolling Stone put out of these rock interviews, Andreas, that I bought when I was maybe 13 in about 1972 or something like that. And, uh, you know, it had that really famous interview with Bloomfield in it from 1968 where he's talking about um, uh, his career and his life. That's kind of the definit- one of the definitive Bloomfield interviews. So I knew a bit about it. I'm not saying I was an expert on Bloomfield, but... Um, and then eventually, in I guess this is in 2015, uh, Ed Ward, who is you know a really brilliant uh, writer, who wrote in in the very early days of Rolling Stone. I read Ed Ward when I was a kid in Rolling Stone, with his reviews and his writing, and um, you know he also I believe helped to start South by Southwest down in Austin. He's just done. He's had an amazing career, and he's he's knows, you know, just so much about rock and roll. Uh, And at the time, he was working on the first volume of a rock and roll history, okay? And he didn't have the time to, to do research for this book. And the book he had written in 1983, Bloomfield died in 1981. And Ed wrote a book on Bloomfield that came out I believe in 1983, and uh, was really the first and only, well, the first real book on Bloomfield. There've been a couple of others since then, but um, this is really the first book on Bloomfield, and it went out of print just really quickly, so um, I got the job of just kind of going back and taking a look at the book and trying to find out some new things and do some new interviews to write a little bit more, And just kind of bring this book up to date for 2015, 2016. And it was a a great experience. Um, um, I went in and and just tried to interview as many of the people who had been associated with Bloomfield that would talk to me who were still around as I possibly could. So I talked to his brother, Alan, a lot. He's a really great guy. I talked to uh, Nick Grabenitis of the electric flag, to Barry Goldberg, um, Joe Boyd, who had actually seen Bloomfield in Chicago before he was famous. Um, Gosh, you know, all kinds of people who were associated with this story, all the people that I could really find. And uh, so I think we did a pretty good job of basically just updating the book and and adding some new information about uh, what had really happened. I mean, a good example would be in the original book, um, you know, Bloomfield and the Butterfield Band got taken to task by uh, a lot of intellectuals, I guess, in the the 60s, who believed they were, white people shouldn't play the blues, that's about as simple as you can put it, and so there's a thing in the original book where Julius Lester, who was a great writer and a great uh, musicologist, I, I believe he's, he died in the last couple of years, but you know, I was able to talk to Julius Lester about what he really meant in, in the piece that there's a famous piece or infamous piece he wrote where he's saying, you know, that, that white people shouldn't play the blues and they're stealing this music. And so I went out of my way to like find Julius Lester and figure out, you know, kind of what he was really saying about that and to um, kind of amplify that a little bit, find the original article where he's really saying these things, which is in a totally obscure little journal about jazz that no one remembers, and he sent that to me. So there were just a lot of things like that that were were really amazing things to discover about Bloomfield. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of research on what happened at Newport in 1965, you know, when, when Bloomfield plays with Dylan and all of that, you know, and I found out that a lot of what people thought happened, didn't really happen, and that there were a lot of misconceptions. Um, I mean, there was a book that came out right around that time by an, a really great music writer named Elijah Wald about the Newport Festival, and so I was able to use some of that. So, you know, for me it was like a really kind of a, a fantastic thing to do, to go back and, and try to figure out what really happened with Mike Bloomfield, and what this is really all about and kind of put it a little bit more into context. Ed Ward, of course, did a fantastic job of doing that because he interviewed Bloomfield. He knew him. I never met Mike Bloomfield and my job was to just sort of take this and make it more like 2016 because there's been, as you know, a lot of scholarship and a lot of thinking about blues that is, it's taken it to a, a, a sort of into a new direction that you wouldn't have imagined in the 60s and
0: 70s. Yeah, so we we started this conversation off by talking about uh, Muscle Shoals a little bit, and uh, Bloomfield actually went down to Muscle Shoals to do an Otis Rush record. Yeah. Uh, what do you know about that project?
1: I know a little bit about it. Um, I, I know maybe about as much as one could know about it at this point. Um, He went down there with Gribonitis in either 1968 or early 1969. I'm not really sure because there are no records of it. I asked asked Rick Hall about it and I asked the people at Fame about it and there are no records of that session that I could find. There may be some somewhere, but this was kind of a session that was a little bit under the radar for, for Fame, frankly. It wasn't you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that really a lot of people don't remember. And I don't think Rick Hall even remembered the session because for one thing he didn't do, it. you know, Mickey Buckins is the guy that really did that session and David hood, who normally, you know, if he'd been on that session, he has kept incredible notes of everything he's done apparently. And he wasn't on the session. So he couldn't tell me when it happened really, um, um, And no one could really tell me much about what happened except Mickey Buckins, who was there, who talked to me about it. And Nick Gravonitis, who produced the record along with Mike Bloomfield and wrote some of the material, uh, he knew a little bit about it. Uh, I mean, Jimmy Johnson was on that session. I believe Dwayne Allman was on it, Barry Beckett, um, Mark Naphtalin, who was... Who played with Bloomfield? The great blues piano player was on the session, um, and then Bowlegs Miller's horn section played on the thing. So I remember Mickey telling me about, you know, like Bowlegs Bo and, and, and his band, you know, shooting craps on, on the, you know, in the studio and doing all these great things. Man, I'm sure it was a blast to be there. But um, um, it, it's, it's still kind of a somewhat mysterious session in a lot of ways because. Um, as I said, Rick just didn't even remember anything about it. Um, and no one really much remembered except Mickey. And he, he remembered remembered it pretty well. Um, so what I know about it really is that he just... Otis just went down there and cut it with, uh, with Bloomfield and uh, with that band and with Dwayne Allman over a couple of days and put it out on Cotillion Records. I don't think the record did that well. Um, it was kind of an attempt to turn him into maybe a, more of a soul artist or something. I'm not totally sure. It, to um, me,
0: it seems like a little bit similar to what they tried to do to Albert King over at Stax.
1: Right, I think the material just wasn't as good. And that's, that's the difference, I mean, Albert King had Booker T and Eddie Floyd material and all that, you know, so that was, and I guess Cropper maybe wrote for Albert King, I don't know, but the material wasn't really as good. Um, The funny thing, you know, and one of the things that made me try to figure out when this happened, and maybe someday somebody will just tell me, and it's, I think we ended up doing a discography for the book, and I think we put it in 1969 just out of default. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but um, one of the funny, funny things about it was that Gravinitis said to Ed Ward, and he repeated this kind of to me, is that he thought that because he and Bloomfield had gone down there and done this thing, they had sort of set this example for the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, saying that you could get away from, you know, Rick Hall and fame, and you can go out and do your own things. And according to Gravinitis, that was the impetus for them starting Muscle Shoals sound, which began, I think, in March of 1969 when they went across town and they left Rick. And to this day, I don't know if, I think there's probably some truth to that, you know. I don't really know if it's totally true. I mean, because my understanding, and, and I'm sure you know as much about this, or far more than I do, that, you know, Rick had Rick Hall had signed a thing with Capitol, and they weren't really exactly getting cut into it. So what David Hood told me is they flew up to um, New York to meet with Jerry Wexler, and... He kind of provided them the seed money and so forth to start their own studio. So it really came almost through Wexler.
0: Yeah, and David actually mentioned on his podcast episode that according to him, the most prevalent reason why they did it was that Rick wanted to exclusively bind the Muscle rhythm section to his, to fame. And by that time, they'd already worked for different people and they were not really willing or able to uh to go exclusive for him and uh lose all the other opportunities they had because they already went up to to new york to to work with with cherry waxer and different people that's right that's right but sometimes i'm sure there's a lot of different elements that you know will actually funnel into a decision like that
1: yeah i think they were just ready to to do their own thing um um so i don't know but I think that's all really interesting, you know, when you look at, um, and when you look at the fact that Bloomfield was finally down in Alabama, this place he'd read about for years and he was there, you know, I mean that, I think that's, uh, I think that's almost poignant in a way. I think it's almost kind of sweet, you know, that he's, he believed in it so much, you know, Mike Bloomfield, Michael Bloomfield believed in it, believed in the blues. He believed in American music too, and, um. I mean, I mean, the other thing, I learned a lot doing doing that project, and I'm really proud of the way that came out, you know, and uh, I, I learned that, you know, Bloomfield was a, a really a polymath of a guy. I mean, you know, when you read an interview with someone in like 1968 in Rolling Stone, and he knows who Travis Womack is, that's pretty hip, right? That's not the usual thing of a guitar player, that the guitar player wouldn't necessarily say back in those days, you know so he really knew what was going on with with all of that with guitar players. I mean he knew who played on like the Billy Swan records. he really liked Billy Swan a lot. so he could probably sit there and say that's chip Young and that's Reggie Young and on and on and on you know so he was he was that kind of guy you know he really. It it transcended blues, I guess, is the point I would make. I mean, I think that had he lived and had he been able to kind of get it together a little bit better, um, he would have been today what you would certainly call an Americana artist, you know, because he was covering George Jones tunes, he was covering... Randy Newman tunes he was doing all these things that weren't really blues
0: gospel stuff
1: dude. gospel stuff Yeah, you know the Tacoma stuff he did um, Man, he just had such a range and I think it's also a little bit of a canard to say that Bloomfield Wasn't as good a guitarist as he as he could have been at the end of his life You know, I don't really think that's exactly true because the things that I've heard him do, playing just acoustic guitar, playing this sort of orchestral thing where he's doing rhythm, and you know, it's, it's, it's a lot fuller. And I think he was killing that at the end of his life. I think he was able to play. He was trying to figure out a different way to play, I guess.
0: I, I, I second that. And I believe that his demons probably sometimes got in the way of him being more consistent towards that the end of his life. But some of the most interesting playing can be found in some of those more obscure releases towards the end of his Yeah, time. you
1: know those, right? The Norman uh Dayron things. Yeah, and some of there's...
0: the Italian stuff and it's just like right. maybe not as consistent but certainly every bit is interesting.
1: I think every bit is interesting. And I think he it shows just how much he loved um, you know, every aspect of American music. He liked country music a lot. You know, he appreciated what that was. I mean he was probably sitting around listening to Jack Clement or to Charlie Pride and to George Jones and Wynette. I mean, he he was probably just as happy to hear that as he was to hear, um, you know, JB Hutto or, or, or magic Sam. Right. So yeah, I think uh, it's, it's, it's sad really that what happened there and I hope, You know, someday there, people will be able to appreciate a little bit more of what he did and not just totally miscategorize him to some degree as a typical failed white blues player. You know, I mean, I mean, because, you know, there's a lot of those kind of players from, I mean, not failed, you know, players, but Peter Green to Eric Clapton. You start going down the list, it's a pretty long list. Um, so maybe someday there will be uh, a reassessment of what he's done and people will begin to get the picture i, I certainly hope the book that that i worked on with with edward goes some way toward toward helping people to see that
0: yeah so you just mentioned the term americana and pretty much all the different tangents we've been talking about here over the past hour are part of that americana continuum whatever you want to call it yeah and you just told me prior to this interview that the term americana and this ecosystem is something you've been thinking about a lot what are what are your thoughts what is like what's on on your mind well
1: you know andreas i mean as I, i think i used the word contrarian earlier and anyone who knows me knows I hope they know that I have a sense of humor about things. I tend to take things kind of light if I can, uh, and I tend to have my own, and I think this is true with, with you know writers and, and people, and I'm certainly not the only one, but I mean, I kind of have my own opinion about what's going on with Americana, and, uh, you know, I've covered it for like 12 or 13 years now because when I first... Started writing for the Nashville scene. I've, I've been a freelancer for the scene since 2012. I'm not a, I'm not a staffer, but I've done a lot of work for them uh, since maybe 2005, 2006. And um, I covered, you know, the Americana Fest back in, I guess, 2005 for the first time. So I got to see, you know, a man like Solomon Burke. Uh, you know, I got to see, I remember seeing Bobby Bear, you know, all these people uh, at that Americana Fest. So I've covered it since 2005, you know, and I've covered the festivals. I've written about the artists, you know, weekly in the scene. I've, you know, almost kind of gone out of my way to cover a music that being the contrarian that I am, I can't say that I totally Am in sympathy with, in many ways, and that's that's all to the good because, after all, as a writer, if you can only write about the things that you totally agree with, you're going to run out of things real quick. Even if you like as much music as somebody like me or like you, you know, you're going to you're going to run out of subjects. So you can
0: only write so many love songs.
1: You can only write so many love songs and so many you know uh, love letters to people. And of course, you know, it's you're not in it to like give. To be a contrarian, but given my particular background as a person who really has always liked, you know, man, jazz, R&B, blues, I like Latin music, I like, um, I'm a big rock and roll fan, I'm a big sort of pop fan, I mean, uh, how do I put this? I mean, I used to tell people... They'd say, you know, where in the world are you coming from, man? Sometimes they would—they wouldn't understand. They would get sort of peeved at me because I was upending some of their preconceptions or their notions about what they thought about Americana and about American music. And I would say, well, look, man, you know, um, the music of August Starnell and Doctor Buzzard's original Savannah band has probably meant more to me than the combined works of Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt ever could, which to them was like a sacrilegious thing to say. Like, oh my goodness, you mean you like disco better than you like Guy Clark? And I'd be like, well, uh, yes and no. It's not a matter of liking it better. It's a matter of what music does what. I think that they both have their place in what you would call, you said, the ecosystem of music. So... That's, you know, sort of where I've always been coming from as opposed to someone who just naturally gravitates toward the Texas singer-songwriters, toward, you know, Guy Clark and Van Zandt and Robert Earl Keane and Willis Allen Ramsey and, uh, gosh, who are some of the others. I mean, you start going down the list, there are quite a few of those people. And my journey as an Americana writer has been to learn to appreciate this a lot more. You know, and which I certainly have. I ended up interviewing, uh, in, you know, interviewing Guy Clark, for example, uh, a couple times, and he's a great figure, absolutely. But um, I think that Americana really comes out of the experience of people who are exactly my age, because all the people I worked with on No Depression were born around 1960 in the early 60s. They came up through. Um, regular old rock and roll, you know, from the Beatles to Neil Young to Matha Hoople to whatever. But then in the late 70s and early 80s, punk happened and new wave happened. And these, I feel like the sensibility of Americana comes from the experience of people who were sort of that age and they got kind of thrown for a loop by punk rock and by new wave, and then down the line, people started to figure out that well, you can combine this uh, the aesthetics of punk and new wave with sort of what happened in country music and in sort of alternative country. You know what I'm saying? So, for example, to me, uh, "London Calling" by the Clash is an Americana record because. What are they writing about? They're writing about America. They're writing about Jimmy Jazz. They're writing about, you know, they're writing about this experience they're they're having with American music that's been filtered through their experience as punks, you know. And you could say the same thing about the Mekons' uh, Fear and Whiskey. That's about what 1985. That's an Americana record. They're they're they're. Europeans grappling with this idea of country and trying to figure out how they relate to that. And um, Elvis Costello's King of America, right? I mean, that's James Burton and all the the cats that played on all those records that Elvis Costello listened to when he was growing up. And that's the very title, King of America. That's, that, to me, that's where Americana begins. It's the sensibility of these people. It's... You know, Jason and the Scorchers, the same thing in Nashville. I mean, they're trying to combine what they think is punk rock and what they think Hank Williams is and put this out into the world. And so it's really, in some ways, if you want to simplify it, you could say it's just country punk. I mean, that's where it comes from. And so I don't really share the views of people who think that it's just Alt country with a new name and with a new hat and a new beard. I think it's it's a little bit more than that, and I think maybe what you're seeing now in Americana, which is a very eclectic, very syncretic, very far-reaching, you know, uh, uh, kind of music, that kind of bears out what I think is happening. That they're just they're trying to combine a certain root sensibility with rock and roll or punk or something I mean and they're, they're trying to like marry these things together um, you know in a way that can can reach a new audience so I think initially it really does come out of um, the experience of people who were kind of shocked into like th- this awareness of of with punk rock and with new wave that's my take on it so um I think it's changed a lot since then. I think it's not really that anymore. I think it's a lot of different things. Uh, um, You should ask me about what I think about the political aspect of Americana. You want to talk about that? I mean, we're here, you know. We
0: can go anywhere, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it's a political thing. I think it's a political music. And I think that... um, I mean, from my perspective, I'm just such a realist about music, Andres. I'm not an idealist about music. Whatever people do is what they do, and you can just describe it. You can't change it. I mean, I think that, and I don't think this is true across the board. There are a lot of wonderful people in Americana, wonderful people who promote it. I know a lot of them. You know, I'm not... I'm not the kind of guy that just is going to say this is, you know, this is nonsense or this is lame. And a lot of people who are similar to me in my taste and sensibilities, they would just say it's, it's kind of lame. You know, it's like an imitation of roots music. And I don't really agree with that. I think it's, I definitely think it's more than that, but you know, there's a political aspect to, to, to Americana that, It's sort of exemplified by uh, a story I'll tell. I mean, I wrote a piece on uh, the last Americana Fest, and I was reviewing, I don't know, maybe it was, there's a woman named Lily Hyatt, who's John Hyatt's daughter, who, if you listen to her music, it sounds like David Bowie. It sounds like Roxy music. And I like David Bowie and Roxy music, but the last time I looked, they're not Americans. I, I don't know... I mean, okay, that's fine. And so I was just kind of doing a typical writerly thing and saying, well, look, if you're saying that Americana can be Lily Hyatt channeling Roxy music or something, you know, why is it that Americana doesn't recognize, why is it that Americana recognizes Irma Thomas and, uh, let's see, uh, Don Bryant, you know, man, William Bell, Betty LeVette, stacks in general I mean all, all that kind of 60s soul music Otis Redding would be you know all of that could be considered sort of a, a, a touchstone to them why is it then that they don't recognize George Clinton or Funkadelic you know why where does why does it stop somehow or
0: jazz in general
1: and ja- well jazz in general A very good point that's what I'm saying I mean why is it that Americana seems to Uh, exist in a vacuum where hip-hop music, which is by far the most popular music in the world, a music of completely global influence that, and you just mentioned jazz, and that's a very important point, because, you know, jazz, kind of like blues and like a lot of other music, it's fallen on hard times lately. It's not a very popular music anymore. It became, you know, like a specialist music, and almost a museum piece in some ways. I mean, you have to face that. And what's keeping jazz alive in many ways is the influence of hip-hop and electronic techniques. I mean, I just heard a great record by a group of, I think it's called Mast, this group, and they're doing monk tunes, and they're doing them in a post-hip-hop kind of glitchy, kind of electronic way that's fantastic. It's fantastic, you know, and, and Esperanza, uh, let's see, uh, Esperanza Spaulding, she's a hip-hop influenced jazz artist who is taking the music in new directions and she's popular, so why is it that Americana can't get with that? I mean, why? what is the logic behind liking one kind of black American music but saying another kind of black American music doesn't fit into this picture? And there's no answer to it because there's no reason for them to do it. It's just, quite frankly, uh, their inability maybe to see what's really going on. And I back this up by just a conversation I had with a very smart guy that I used to work with in the no depression days. Who this guy's a smart dude. You know, he's my age. He's he's up on everything. I mean, he's a smart fellow. But he told me after I wrote this piece, he, he didn't like the piece. He was like, well, why do you always have to bring up hip-hop, Ed? What, is this, what purpose does this serve? And, and furthermore, I don't think that hip-hop is anything but sort of inimical, you know, damaging to, to country music. What does hip-hop have anything to do with country music? It seems like this is helping to destroy country music. And there are a lot of people who think that. Because when you listen to country, man, it, it's, it's hip-hop influence. There's no doubt about it from the, the very basis of it. And I had to say, well, look, you know, have you ever been to West Tennessee and seen people um, listening to what they listen to in the radio? They're listening to Keith Urban and to Marin Morris and to, uh, you know, Florida Georgia Line and to go down the list of modern country. And they're also listening to hip-hop that's what's on the radio. That, those are the two things they listen to. So how is it that the actual audience for country music likes hip-hop and the people who make country music incorporate it into their music, how is it you're saying that it's that it's damaging to country when they're, they like it and they use it? And he really just didn't have much of an answer except that that's just not his world. And I don't think that's... Unfortunately, the world of Americana—they're just—that's why I think it's a political thing because you're 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 embracing one thing, you're cutting another thing off, and there just isn't any reason for it, you know. To me, Andreas. Now, I mean, um, I know that Americana is a marketing scheme as much yeah. as, it, as it is a kind of music Absolutely,
0: and, and I feel like whenever you label something there's a blessing in the curse labeling something too you want to it to f- define something to to give a description of a certain thing but by doing that by definition you exclude other things
1: sure and maybe that's just the nature of things so I mean I'm not knocking it I mean it's just, it's just something that, that that's interesting to point out because after all I like music and I like being an American and being you know, as we started this conversation where am I from I'm from the south so I like country music and I like James Brown and I like everything I mean that's that's to me it's all part and parcel of of what this is about and I don't really think that even hip-hop which is a different thing let's face it it's a different kind of approach to music in many ways but I like that too. So I don't see the the why you have to make these distinctions, and so I think it just it does come down to marketing more than it comes down to Americana is not a kind of music. It's a it's a term given to a kind of music in in order for you to be able to understand it as a marketing scheme. And I have nothing against that at all. I mean, we've all got to make money, and that's the way it is. But um, you know when you look at it in the broader range of things it does seem like there are, you might say some contradictions at work
0: yeah and i like you know talking about it because talking about it makes us reflect those issues and maybe actually get us to a you know a more informed space which which i i think is always a good thing so we're almost at the end of our conversation i sure appreciate you sharing all your your knowledge let's to close this off kind of bring it back from you know the big spectrum to small and we're here in nashville one artist you recently uh covered and one artist that i love is kevin gordon
1: kevin gordon
0: and kevin is live is not nashvillian but he's been here for a while that's right and he's very much an eclectic guy yeah himself uh I'm bringing up as a, as a, just an example of somebody kind of existing in his own space, being very great, not necessarily as well known as he should be. Uh, Do you have any personal favorites that you would like to turn other people on to? I thought
1: maybe you'd ask that. So I did actually think about this a little bit before I came down and uh, you mentioned Kevin. Um, Um, You know, he, Kevin Gordon is great. I mean, he's uh, one of the best songwriters in Nashville. Um, I really like what he does a lot. And I think, you know, I I would really almost say that Kevin Gordon is a guy who, and I know this will sound, again, I'm a contrarian, so you just have to bear with me here. Uh, I think Kevin Gordon is a good example of, what Nashville can do, and in a smaller way, but a significant way, an example of what Nashville sometimes isn't very good at, you know? And I think this goes back to Americana and and people's expectations of an artist. I mean, he's definitely, you know, boy, Tilt and Shine, his last few records, man... You know, I, I met him in Americana, and I just told him, I said, you know, there's a song called um, The Drunkest Man in Town on that last record. I mean, boy, what a great song. That song should be popular. It should be on the radio. I mean, that's, you know, you, you're a better person for hearing what Kevin Gordon has to say. He's fantastic, you know. Um, but I don't think that he's totally... And I hate to say this, but he's just not totally being well served by certain aspects of what Nashville does. And uh, and I'll get to some other favorites in a minute. But I think he, it's an example of of the limitations that Nashville puts upon itself that they don't need to be putting on that they don't need to be putting on themselves because uh, the production on Kevin Gordon records, I mean. I wouldn't necessarily do it that way is about the best I can say. And it's the politest way I could say it. I'm not saying it's necessarily terrible. I think it's okay, but this is a guy that needs to be produced in the biggest way and he needs to have, He needs to be as well produced as Bobby Charles was. Okay. And you you, you know, I love Bobby Charles. And I think he's like, he's as good as Bobby Charles, man. He is every bit as good. And that's the highest praise I could give. So that's kind of an East Nashville Americana thing in a way that, you know, uh, they're afraid of pop music. They're afraid of just being popular. I'm convinced of that. So there's a fallback position that they. They just crawl back to all the time, sort of like this foxhole of, you know, uh, country music and this notion of authenticity or integrity and you know being an artist as opposed to just being a popular musician. And I think, and I, and I think the production on his records is okay, but if if it if there was a slight difference in approach, he I think he would be more popular. He deserves to be. So I think that's just a very typical Nashville attitude. And that gets back to the dichotomy between country, which is just meant to be popular, and Americana, which is trying to be something else, which is hard for me to, to grasp. You know, they're just they're they're intentionally almost trying to not be popular or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my take on him. Um, and, and a general thing that happens over there in East Nashville. I've always felt that. That said, I'm a big fan of, you know, heck, Elizabeth Cook, man. I've known her for a long time. She's real good. I think Todd Snyder is a mad genius of music. He's completely insane, but he's a genius. He's really great. Uh, you know, as far as Nashville goes, I mean... Amelia White is good in, in East Nashville, sort of that sort of thing. I like, um, obviously, I like Isbell. I like, um, uh, you know, uh, Gillette Johnson's pretty good. I mean, there's a band in Nashville that's kind of under the radar that I got to mention that I'm, I really like a lot. Uh, Lou Turner and the Styrofoam Winos. Uh, I think she is great. I think she's a very unusual, interesting songwriter. Uh, I like Tim Carroll in in East Nashville. I think he's great. Um, At the same time, Andreas, because I cover, you know, rock bands here all the time. I go to places like the East Room, the Cobra, you know, and you see rock bands that are, all these people are under 30 years old. They're kind of playing rock and roll music. a band like Idol Bloom is really great for example they're kind of a rock band um, there's a guy named Connor Cummins who is in this band called spody boy that I think is great they're just he's like just this confrontational sort of punk I think he's fantastic um, my friend Steve Poulton, he's been around forever I, I'm a huge fan of his work um, you know I, I like Paul Birch I think he's good I um, you know who's played with Kevin. Um, you know there there are a lot of people kind of doing this great work in Nashville, um, and I think some of it is coming from the rock and roll side of it. I mean, there's a kid, and I say kid because I don't he can't be more than 20 years old or something that I discovered just at the show, named Isaac Q. Horton Andreas, who's the most unlikely looking sort of rock star you could see on stage, but He's in a band that he calls Ivan and he's totally original. I mean, he's like just, he's the rules don't mean anything to a lot of these, these younger people. They're, they're out there trying to break the rules and make new rules. So I really admire, I mean, so many people in Nashville, so many, there's so many great talents working here just every day, you know, from the old school to the, uh, kind of the new school, you know, Um, Annie McHugh, I mean, I think Annie McHugh is the baddest guitar player I've ever seen in my life. I, every time I see her, I mean, she's, she's everything you, you could want in a musician. And you can multiply that by a thousand. So um, I'm real lucky to be here and to, and to be acquainted with and to be friends with and to, and to participate in kind of this thing that's happening in Nashville, which is truly unprecedented. I mean, you know, uh, man, you know, Kurt Wagner, um, Matt Swanson, um, I mean, uh, Chris Davis, my friend Chris Davis, who um, is doing an incredible job of bringing music to Nashville and and things that are experimental that you would not normally see. Uh, These are the people that I really have just a ton of respect for, and uh, I'm just really proud to be part of the process uh, in the ecosystem of Nashville, to let people know about what's going on. So, I mean, who are, do you want to name some of your favorites before we go? You got got any favorites?
0: Well, I, I do have uh, some favorites. Um, it's interesting, though, you know, just hearing you talk, and we live in the same town, and there were at least two, three, or four names you you mentioned I've never seen live, and it's certainly. Yeah, makes right. me want to check them out and that's
1: that's the thing yeah that's see the what thing.
0: they're doing um it's like i've been just kind of rediscovering people more recently than yeah. than than discovering new people um i'm on this mission right now where i look you mentioned billy swan you know yeah. donnie fritz and some of those guys, as far as their writing ability or their performing ability, they're very much still on the top of their game. But they don't get or they choose not to make records. And to me, that's, it's almost like a library that could exist that doesn't. And I'm more on a mission to say, hey, Billy Swan, can we make a record? Hey, can we? To me, it's like, that's what I'm interested in right now. It's like, you're one of the most significant artists in, in my, you know, kind of my life. I want more of you. And then there you know, as such, making that available to other people. So other people can see the evolution of those artists. They, you know, I, I think artists usually if they, if not anything, you know, happens or they die, they, they get better or they get more mature or they get more interesting and uh it's it's a little bit of a shame that a lot of these people for whatever reason don't make records
1: i totally agree i think that uh, billy swan should be making records um you know and of course you know you you put out that great um you helped uh, facilitate i guess that record with buzz case and in, in some way you know and that's great i really enjoy that record uh You know, Rob Galbraith is still around, and he's a a friend of mine. Uh, I always go see Rob Galbraith when he does his show. Matt Gaden's still around. Uh, You know, I mean, Wayne Moss is still around, still running his studio. I've seen Wayne Moss in recent years playing with uh, bass out at the Midnight Jamboree, for example, just playing bass with people. I mean, uh, you know, Bergen White is still alive in Nashville. I mean... And, and doing good work, Bobby Braddock. I mean yeah, I mean there's 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 a lot of there's a lot to the to the history of Nashville, I guess that people aren't super aware of and maybe they should be and people like Billy Swan. So yeah, I think that um, you know, I think gradually those people are being recognized more because um, it just it's a lot more diverse here than people usually give it credit for. As when you when you start looking at the at the bigger picture, um, usually I mean I don't even get autographs from people. I mean I I think I got Dan Penn's autograph because I'm not completely crazy. I figured I wanted to get Dan Penn's autograph. Okay, I get some autographs, but I'm not an autograph hunter. But you know I went up to Billy Swan one time and I had this, the copy of his third record on Monument. You know, I think it's a masterpiece. And uh, I went up to him like a little puppy dog and just said, Mr. Swan, you are the greatest. I love this record. He just kind of looked at me like, all right, son, you know, and signed this record, you know. And I, I mean, I don't think these guys realize how much people like you and me appreciate them. I mean, because, you know, Bill, I mean, I, you know, they really don't under, always understand because they're just working guys that how much they've contributed to Nashville, you know. And so I think it's really important to do what you're doing, uh, you know, to try to bring them back to attention. Um, uh, I know you're, uh, for example, Steve Steve Kahn, right? That guy's very underrated. Yeah, he was about. in here last week. Yeah, I know I should. I meant to come out and see that, actually, because I be love at, Steve Kahn. you will gonna... be at
0: Douglas Corner Monday night.
1: you going to go? Absolutely. Well, let's go. 7.30. 7.30. And Nashville, you gotta be there too, because this guy's great, right? He is the real deal for sure. Great piano player, great songwriter.
0: Absolutely. Very underrated too. Very underrated. Anyway, I like to just stop it here. Thank you so much for for spending this last hour with me. This was I learned so much and thank you so much for sharing all that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's
1: it's been a total gas, man. It's been great.
0: Well, I appreciate that that's mutual, and uh, I wish you all the best with whatever might come your, your way, including that Bloomfield box headline. No
1: problem. Yeah, I'm working on a couple of other things that uh, I hope will come to fruition. So um, one must just keep working at it. That's really the point, right?
0: Absolutely.
1: Thank you again so much.
0: Thank you. <laughs> This was the 39th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please make sure to subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour podcast on iTunes or check it out on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn or Stitcher. That's it for today. See you next week.